I'd like to invite you, if you will, to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. The title of tonight's sermon is Grace and Peace from God to Us. Grace and Peace from God to Us. I take that idea directly from Ephesians 1, 2, and if you want to follow along with me in the English Standard Version of the Bible, we'll read the first 14 verses, even though we'll only concentrate on the introduction tonight from verses 1 to 2. But let's read, uh, for the sake of context, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. You follow along as I read. Paul, and apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, as I said, we're only going to be able to go through the first two verses, believe it or not, tonight, because I want to concentrate specifically on that concept of grace and peace. The entire letter of Paul to the Ephesians really has, as some of its underlying themes, this idea of grace and the idea of peace. It's really throughout. I would contend that it is this grace and peace which is lavished not only upon the Ephesians, but upon us as well. If you're a believer in Christ, if you know Christ, if you are truly, genuinely in Christ, you know of this grace and this peace that I refer to. It's a great gift. It's God's great gift to those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's own life, which will be the center of our time tonight, Paul's own life as he pens this letter to the Ephesians is a testament to God's grace and peace. And the message tonight is really simple. It's an attempt to show you through the life of the Apostle Paul how God's grace grants us new life in Christ, as well as sustaining grace and peace throughout our Christian lives. The vast bulk of what we'll focus on tonight is how God granted the grace and peace to Paul, who is said to be, by the way, in Ephesians 1.1, the author of this letter. There are some who doubt this, but really the history of the church and sound scholarship is a testament to the idea that Paul himself was the author of this letter. And we certainly get to seeing right off the bat the grace and peace bestowed upon even Paul himself. And I want to endeavor to show that to you tonight. You say, well, what is grace and peace? Well, if we define it, and we'll define it a couple of times tonight, it is this. Grace is God's unmerited favor, right? 
It's his unmerited favor. It's his undeserved regard toward us. If you look back in the Old Testament, there might even be a a word, hesed, that speaks of God's steadfast love, his care, his kindness. And we might even say that that's an equivalent here in our New Testaments. God's grace, his charis, that's the Greek word, his undeserved favor that he has bestowed upon us. Not, not for anything that we've done, not for any merit of our own. We didn't deserve anything that God gives to us from his good hand. That's why we call it grace. If you have grown up in the church, you might have even heard uh, someone refer to it in a Sunday school class as a little child, God's riches at Christ's expense, using the acronym of grace. And even the word peace, irene in the Greek, is that concept of God's well-being, his regard, the, the absence of hostility and the gentleness and regard of God giving us peace, peace with him. I really appreciate one of the great commentators uh, of the last several decades, Leon Morris. And he wrote not only a commentary on the book of Ephesians, but he wrote another book called Expository Reflections to the Letter to the Ephesians. And it is just packed with gems of, of devotional comment by Leon Morris. And he says on page 12, by the way, about grace. And this is a wonderful remark. He says, grace is one of the great Christian words and one that Paul uses extensively. And I did not realize this myself, but he went on to say, 100 out of its 155 times that the word grace is mentioned in the New Testament, Paul uses it 12 times in this book of of Ephesians. And that Paul is the one who uses it 100 out of those 155 times that it's mentioned in the New Testament. Isn't that amazing? Paul is the champion, we might say, of grace. He, He exalts God's grace. He loves God's grace. Morris goes on to say, Paul's writings make up less than one quarter of the New Testament, but they contain about two-thirds of the references to grace. That's that's really Paul being enveloped himself by what happened to him on that Damascus road, and we're going to find out about that tonight. I'm going to take you on a journey, a Pauline journey of who Paul was prior to Christ, and then what happened on that Damascus road, and then what Paul's life was like after he met Christ. It's an amazing journey because really the author of this letter in capsule form is a person who is the biography of grace and peace, and that's why he's so captivated by it, and that's why I think he even starts out in this letter Uh, attempting to extend the grace of God and the peace of God to those to whom he writes, these Ephesians. Morris, by the way, goes on to talk about the term peace as well. And it's a rich background. You say, what was the background in Paul's mind to the concept of peace? Well, because he was a Jew and he had uh, great learning, great understanding, he almost certainly had a Hebrew understanding of the concept of peace. And this is that great Hebrew term in the Jewish understanding of the word peace, shalom. You heard that word? Shalom. Sometimes it's a mere greeting. When you just greet someone and if you were uh, a Jew speaking to another Jew, you might just say shalom, which is just a, a mere greeting in some contexts. But it means so much more, that Hebrew word shalom. And I think that's what's behind Uh, Paul's understanding of that Greek word erene, which means peace. You say, well, what does the word shalom mean? It's interesting. The Hebrew translation of shalom is derived from a root word that means to be complete, to be sound. And when shalom is translated peace, that's probably not enough to fill out the understanding. Shalom means righteousness, calmness, uh, political and moral uprightness, love. It's really talking about the kinds of things that you would want to extend 
to someone else because of your love for them, your regard for them. You would want to say shalom to them because you would want them to experience wholeness and comfort and peace. And all of that, I think, was probably bound up in the idea that when Irene came to Paul's mind, he thought of shalom as its background. Peace, the peace of God, abundant favor, grace, and goodwill, peace. And this is what captivated Paul because these were some of the leading elements that undoubtedly marked this man, Paul, in his Christian life. Those were the things that gave him this magnificent view of the salvation that he enjoyed in Christ, what Christ did in saving him. Now, with that in mind, I really have three very, very simple outline points tonight. And the first is this, the writer, the writer. And of course, it's Paul. It's Paul. You say, what, what about this man, Paul? What can you tell me about him? Well, this is amazing, and especially for those of you who might not have grown up in the church, you might not be as familiar not only with the book of Ephesians, but with these 13 letters that, that Paul wrote in our New Testaments. Tell me a little bit about his life. Well, I want to do that. And I want to do that by telling you, first of all, that because he was this Hebrew of the Hebrews, his name in Latin, of course, is Paul, which means, by the way, little or small. But his Hebrew name was what? Saul, Saul, which by the way is connected to a Hebrew root word which means to ask, to ask. For Samuel 1.20, that Hebrew term, to ask, like when uh, Hannah asked for that son. And this man Saul, may have even been named for King Saul, was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I've mentioned that to you already. In Acts 22.3, Saul described himself in his pre-Christian condition. And this is what he said. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, which, by the way, is a part of modern-day Turkey. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, referring to Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. Paul, born in Tarsus, was a Roman city, a Roman citizen, because that was a Roman city, a Roman province at the time. Fascinating to, to read about Tarsus and the fact that it was a major, major city, no longer, of course, anymore, but a major city in that day. It was a major city of intellectual prowess. And it was a city in which there was great commerce, great industry. And Paul was born in this place. And we don't know exactly if Paul left there shortly after his birth, but at least at some point, if not the bulk of his early growing up years, he spent in Jerusalem. And when he was a young man, he studied under the great Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the most noted rabbi of Paul's day very fastidious about the law of God and teaching the things related to the law of God. And so Paul says, I was a Jew, born in Tarsus, brought up in the city of Jerusalem, at least for a time, being educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And this is what he also says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, as it relates to the idea of Paul's delight in the law of God, his fastidious keeping of the law of God as a Pharisee, as to that law, externally that is, I was found blameless. You couldn't be more Jewish than I am, Saul says. He was so doggedly committed to first century Judaism. Now, of course, chronologically, as we start to learn more about Saul's young life, we're first introduced to him in Acts chapters 7 and 8. And I'd like you to turn there, if you would, to Acts chapter 7 
And we'll look there initially where this man, Saul, was involved in the approval of the stoning death of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. And I want you to see how determined Paul or Saul was to support the stamping out of what was then being called the way, the way, possibly a reference to Jesus proclaiming later captured, captured in John 14, 6, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. That's what they called this, this Christian sect, the way. And Saul was all about stamping it out, eliminating it, even by force if he had to. In your Bibles there, look at chapter 7, verse 54, and we'll read into the first three verses of chapter 8 as well. Acts seven fifty-four. This is how we're introduced to Saul slash Paul in our New Testaments. Acts seven fifty-four. Now when they, that is the Jewish leaders, heard these things, what things? Uh, Stephen's indictment, his recounting of the Jewish nation and their rejection of their Messiah, Jesus. They were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him, when they cast him out of the city, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named whom? Saul. That's our first familiarity with Saul slash Paul. And as they were stoning, stoning Stephen, Stephen, Dr. Luke says, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was totally committed to eliminating what he was convinced of, and that was there was a genuine, heartfelt threat against the Jewish nation of his day, and it was this way, this Christian sect. And as a Pharisee, the strictest adherents of Judaism in Saul's time believed that those who were proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was the real hope of Israel, and that they must be imprisoned and or else be killed because they were destroying the nation. That was their idea. But the Lord Jesus had other plans, didn't he? The Lord Jesus had other plans for Saul. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Saul's confronted by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. The very road upon which Saul was traveling to eliminate some of the people, or at least put them in prison, for the perceived destroying of Judaism at its very heart. Go to Acts 9, and you can see right from verse 1 how it vividly describe, describes Saul's conversion. Acts 9, 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord or Master? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine this fastidious Pharisaic Jew in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, hearing from heaven a declared voice saying, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in a moment, Saul must have said to himself, surely he did. I'm wrong. I'm dead wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The text goes on to say, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. There were some kind of uh, cataracts, maybe spiritually speaking, on his eyes, or maybe even physically. And so he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I've often wondered why. And one of the things that comes to my mind was the Lord wanted to take at least three days for a man and his thoughts. A man and his thoughts. Because Paul was so convinced that this way and, and all of their teachings about this supposed Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth, it can't be true, it can't be true. And in that twinkling of an eye, when it was true, it took Saul at least three days to come to the idea that everything he'd thought before, everything that he had done, and probably even the sense of the guilt of his own heart about persecuting and in some cases approving of and participating in the killing of Christians was now setting in. Can you imagine those three days? Without sight, not being able to see anything else, but only perceiving who you are in light of who God is and who Jesus is in the one who is confronting you about your life. Amazing. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And you can understand, according to verse 13, why Ananias uh, might be a little reluctant to do this. He knew who Saul was. He knew Saul's persecution of the church. Lord, this is, a, this is a death trap. Are you sure you want me to go see this man, Saul? He might be just as willing to lop off my head. Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And I might insert, including me. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. For the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Surely it was physical. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately, don't you love that in the text? Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Those three days 
with a man and his thoughts. And those scales fall off of his eyes. He's genuinely converted. He takes food. He's baptized. He's strengthened. And he immediately begins to proclaim the very one that he had heretofore been persecuting. Isn't that amazing? He immediately begins to preach Christ. And of course, verse 21, all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul, verse 22, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul knew once he met Jesus on that Damascus road, that his life would never be the same. And you imagine when Jesus revealed himself to Saul, Saul now is begin, beginning to proclaim he is the way and the truth and the life. Paul instantly realized that Jesus was indeed the Messiah of Israel. And by the way, Look at Acts chapter 22. This is the second time Paul recounts his testimony. And this is what he says. Look, uh, beginning in verse 10. This is another time he's before one of the authorities and he recounts his testimony again and he even adds more flavor to it. Acts 22.10, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for, for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand uh, by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of all, by, by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. A direct revelation from Jesus, here called the righteous one. And then he says, For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he, that's Jesus, said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. By the way, that word, I will send you, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, what does it say there? Paul, a what? An apostle. He's being sent. Now really that, that word apostolos just means to be sent. Someone's sending you. That's its most generic sense. But when you talk biblically, when you talk about a, a certain kind of sending by God himself, now you're talking about someone who's being sent with a specific message. And when you talk about even widening that phrase to an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's what Paul says about himself right there in Ephesians 1.1, an apostle of Christ Jesus, then that's even a more specific sending, and it's actually a class of people, and of course we know them as the 12, right? We know them as the 12. We don't have to spend time going through it, but did you realize that that generic term apostle being sent with a message was technically borrowed and then placed very, very well into a context of Jesus in Luke 6, spending all night in prayer to God for the selection of a certain group of men who would 
be apostles, we could even say apostles with a capital A who were being sent with a specific message and who were those who were being sent by Jesus Christ himself. They were apostles of Jesus Christ. And you know, I have heard so much uh, lately, especially with regard to the charismatic movement, about apostles today. And it isn't so. Don't be duped by that. Did you know that technically speaking, there were certain rules that governed who were the apostles of Jesus Christ? And you know there were three things specifically that, that really called you to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? That, that was the requirement for you? Here's number one. You might even write these down. Apostles of Jesus Christ were commissioned by Christ himself. Commissioned by Christ himself himself. The 12. Now, of course, we know Judas later defected the role. He was replaced by, by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. We know that. So there, there, there were the 11. Judas hung himself, committed suicide. He was a false disciple. He was then replaced by Matthias according to Acts chapter 1. And then later, with this conversion that we've seen tonight, you have Saul who even says about himself in 1 Corinthians 15, I was as one untimely born and I was added later as an apostle. And we just read about the revelations that he was receiving and those constituted the very commissioning of Paul himself by Jesus in those visions. That's number one. That's what it means to be an apostle with a capital A commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. Here's the second one. Apostles of Jesus Christ had to have personally witnessed the resurrection of Christ. To have personally witnessed the resurrection of Christ. You see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 22. You might write that down as a verse and look at it later. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. And as I mentioned, Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 15 that these disciples of the Lord, called later, of course, apostles, saw the very resurrected Christ, and Paul seeing him in that vision, constituted the 13 apostles of the Christian church. And then thirdly, thirdly, apostles of Jesus Christ, and of course those closely associated with them, were given the ability to perform miracles and mighty works, even the raising of the dead. And you can see that in the book of Acts, can't you? Peter raised someone from the dead. Paul raised those from the dead to whom God willed. That's why, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul called these mighty works, these casting out of demons and the raising of the dead and the miracles that they performed, the signs of an apostle. The signs of an apostle. And when you see and hear of people today who talk about uh, their mighty works, their miraculous works. I even at one point in Little Rock when I was preaching one time, just like I'm doing tonight, uh, in the pulpit, and there were some men who were objecting to some of the things that I, were, that I was saying, and they actually called out, raised their hands, stood up in the middle of the service, and uh, called me a heretic. And part of it was because I was denying that there are people today who are called apostles with a capital A and who had the, the miraculous ability to raise the dead. And they came up to me after the service and said, we have that ability. We have that ability to raise people from the dead. And I said, if you do, then I will recant my teaching. But if you don't, then you have to stop doing this because severe judgment is headed your way. I said, even if we don't talk about raising someone from the dead, why don't you go with me now to Arkansas Children's Hospital and let's see some of these young boys and girls who are languishing near death in these hospital beds and you go and you raise them up to life so that they are full and complete and whole and that their bodies are cured of all of their disease and, uh, diseases and maladies. And they refuse to do it. Now that kind of chicanery should really emphasize for us, shouldn't it, that these commissionings of these 13 men were unique and unrepeatable in the Christian church. You say, why do you think that? Because they were the foundation stones 
of the church. In fact, look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think this, would, this is very good for us to look at, even as we study and ponder the idea of Paul's very, very um, simple phrase in Ephesians 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus. The apostles of Christ Jesus, this very technical phrase, is said to be in 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, and God appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Now why would Paul say first, second, third? He's talking about historical chronology. God has appointed first, first as the church was beginning to grow, the foundation stones, and the first are those apostles, and the second prophets, and the third teachers. There's a historical progression, and the foundation stones that were being laid to form the very church, and its structure, and its leaders, and their inner workings were the apostles, first and foremost. And then turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 the very epistle that we're studying. Ephesians chapter 2. This is, a, this is a very, very important statement from Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 20. He says, The church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Notice that phrase. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In the history of the formation of the first century church, according to the book of Acts, the apostles were the foundation stones that built the very church upon which you and I stand on their shoulders. Christ being the cornerstone. The apostles laid the foundation, and now there's no reason to again lay foundation stones. They've already been laid. There's no reason to believe that there are apostles today, notwithstanding the, the claims of the charismatic movement. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 11. And he, Christ, gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, and now historically and progressively the shepherds and teachers, the pastor teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is talking about historical progression here. In the history of the church, the foundation stones are the apostles, and Paul is one of them. And then you have prophets and then evangelists, maybe even like uh, missionaries who planted churches in the early uh, first century, and then the shepherds and teachers or the pastor teachers. This is the laying of the foundation of the church, and that's what Paul describes himself as. And can you imagine in his heart and in his mind, he goes from Saul, the persecutor of the church, Saul, the ravager of the church, Saul, who was, who was bent on, on killing Christians and imprisoning Christians, and then he's slapped down on the Damascus Road, and he's confronted with the truth that the very one that you are trying to destroy is none other than myself, Jesus. And I tell you, Saul, instead of killing Christians, you will be used by God in their lives for their good. Now, I can't think, my friends, of a better way to start a book like the letter of Paul to the Ephesians than to accentuate Paul himself as a recipient of grace and peace. Grace and peace. Let that, let that sink deeply into your hearts as you think about not just Saul, not just his life, not just how God converted him on the spot, but even your own life as well. I may not speak much about this in the preaching ministry of Thousand Oaks Bible Church, but I will at least tell you that in my own background, I do not come from a whole host of Christians who have nurtured and cared for me 
and my life. I came, I came from a, a, a very, very pagan kind of family. And in fact, my own mother for all of my growing up years was a Jehovah's Witness. I did not come from uh, Christian stock, as they say. We weren't church-going people. Uh, we, we didn't have uh, these great hymns that we sing. Uh, I wasn't nurtured on the words of the faith. And when I was in college, my first year, the Lord caused me to be born again by reading the gospel accounts of Jesus and his death for me. And, and I didn't know anything. I didn't know any of the Bible stories. I wasn't raised at all to understand and believe and express the kind of joy that I have now. But when that grace and when that peace was visited upon me, I have a faint glimpse, a faint glimpse of what Saul slash Paul might have been going through. Grace and peace. And I remember it like it was yesterday when, when God visited me through those gospel words off that page and into my heart that I was actually hell-bound, deserving of the wrath of God. And instead, God gave me grace and peace. Is that the testimony of your own heart? That you're the recipient of grace and peace? If it is, then it is because of the next phrase that Paul gives us in Ephesians 1.1. You notice it? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. By the will of God of God. This is amazing. Paul knew that his conversion was owing to the sovereign, gracious, sustaining, glorious will of God. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Acts 26. He gives his testimony, by the way, for the third time in the book of Acts, and this is what he says. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Isn't that amazing? And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen, all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant, a slave, and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and uh, seen in me and to those in which I will also appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To do what? Here's the will of God. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He's just recounting again for the third time this testimony. This is who I was. This is what I did. And now, in the most explosive language that he can give, he says, I was ravaging the church I even tried to get them to blaspheme. And then there was this light shining from heaven who showed me in an instant something that I'd never known before, truly 
sincerely, genuinely. And what was it? Grace and peace. Grace and peace. What kind of grace and peace? The grace of forgiveness and the peace that you are right with God. And Paul never got over it. He never got over it. He never quite got over the idea that that's who I was. In fact, doesn't he say in the pastoral epistles, as to sinfulness, I am chief. I'm chief. Does the, does the gospel story get old for you? The idea that you were headed down a road to nowhere, a road of destruction, and God delivered you? The, the light was shown in your heart and you realized that everything that you'd put stock in, everything that you held dear, all that you were banking on to get you to heaven was actually the very things that were going to send you to hell. And Paul knew that. He came to realize that. And that's why I think he says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They call them saints here. Uh, that sort of has its connotations in uh, Roman Catholic theology that there are these saints that are uh, so much more godly and holy, saint so-and-so. No, that's not what he's referring to here. He's just referring to those who are holy in the sense that they're set apart by God. And that was Paul, set apart by God, commissioned by God. And he says, you're also faithful in Christ Jesus. That simply means those who had placed their faith, their confidence, their trust in Christ Jesus and that they were attempting to be faithful in their Christian lives. And he says, Ephesians, that's who you are. And the backdrop for being a saint, someone who's set apart by God, for someone who's faithful, that's just those who are trying to be expressing their faith, their confidence that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we want to be faithful to him. All of the backdrop for all of that is grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now this was, this was struck home to me as we close tonight when I recently saw, as maybe you did, the story about Louis Zamperini. That movie that has just been released, Unbroken, and the book from which that movie was based by Laura Hillenbrand. Well, I started doing some, some other reading because I was so fascinated by this story of Louis Zamperini, and it reminded me of someone in our day who seemed to have everything in his life that would push toward hatred and anger and bitterness. You say, how so? I'm, I'm not familiar with this Louis Zamperini story. If you're not, briefly, here it is as we close. This was an Olympic runner. He had been extolled as someone who was in the 1936 Olympics, like Jesse Owens. And he was setting his sights on being able to run the mile, which was his specialty that he didn't run in the 36 Olympics, but he was setting his sights on the 1940 Olympics and the mile. And of course, he or no one else ever got there because World War II intervened. And when that occurred, Louis Zamperini joined the military. And he became a bombardier in an airplane that ultimately crashed in the Pacific Ocean. And he and two other men, one of them to die on a raft, were actually on that raft by God's grace, I might add, for 47 days and survived, two of those three men. And yet when they survived, after 47 days, they were picked up from that raft that raft by Japanese soldiers. And Louis Zamperini spent two and a half years in POW camps, being beaten virtually every day, especially at two of those camps by a man they called the Bird. 
who was a man who sadistically wanted to make especially this great Olympian, Louis Zamperini, suffer. And he beat him mercilessly. For two and a half years, he was subjected to the kinds of beatings and the deprivation and starvation of the fortunes of war. And what was so amazing about this story was that Louis Zamperini, during all of that experience, and even as he came home and continued to have nightmares in his sleep about his experiences there, said, I hated the bird. I hated that man. I had nightmares every single night about what I would want to do to him if I was ever to come face to face with him again. Even after the war was over, and even after the United States and the Allied forces had, had won victoriously this, this major battle of World War II, and he thought, if I ever had the opportunity, I would strangle him to death. That was his idea. That was his dream. That was his desire. He had such anger and bitterness and wrath in his heart, especially for that one man, the bird. And of course, as you may know, in 1949, Louis Zamperini was really dragged by his wife to a Billy Graham crusade. That was the first crusade that really catapulted Billy Graham into national prominence. And Louis Zamperini was one of those in the audience. And Billy Graham preached the gospel. And a light shone. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, just like Saul of old, Louis Zamperini of modern times came to faith in Jesus Christ. And all the, the bitterness and the anger in a very short time frame motivated him instead of wanting to put his hands around the neck of the bird and choke him to death, but to forgive him. It's an amazing story. And what Laura Hillenbrand does not say, because she, not being a Christian either, did not accentuate uh, the vast amount of Louis' life, and certainly the movie didn't give hardly any of that at all, Louis actually says in his own autobiography these words, and I close. Today, Ofuna, which is the POW camp where he was, is a resort. Then it was just a painful memory. Omori, which was another POW camp he was in, was much the same story. Except that as I drove, which meant, of course, that Louis got on a plane and he went to Japan and he visited these POW camps several years later with the hope that he would come in contact with all of his captors. And he says, as I drove across the bridge from the man-made island, I was more afraid than sad. Would I remember the thrill of watching B-29s streak across Tokyo, bomb bays pregnant with destruction? Or would I see the bird's leering frog face and feel the sting of his buckle hitting my head? The island was a shambles. The fences had vanished, but the deep holes once filled with human excrement remained. I tracked through the weeds and looked in the window of a collapsing barrack to find the same two planks where I'd slept. Three tramps now called it home, and poverty-stricken Japanese families huddled in the cubby holes for warmth, picking at the sand fleas that still swarmed unchecked. I saw the room where we were allowed an occasional bath while an inquisitive audience of girl cooks giggled and pointed at our physical merits or shortcomings. I stood in the barn with the holes in the wall where I saw another POW shiver for days, surrounded by ankle-deep snow for stealing rice. I remembered Kano, the kindly guard who'd risk his life to bring him blankets in the night. Then Louis Zamperini closes with this, I wandered through the courtyard Memories coming hard and fast. Me, a virtual skeleton forced to run, stealing newspapers, beatings, depression, death, and the bird watching 
never missing anything, grinning as he unburdened his rage on yet another prisoner. My chest tightened at how real it all seemed. Soon I would see my guards face to face. My forgiveness was so authentic and total that I looked forward to seeing each of them. I longed to look in their eyes and say not only I forgive you, but to tell them of the greatest event of forgiveness the world has ever known when Christ on the cross and at the peak of his agony could say of his executioners, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Folks, that's a lesson in grace and peace. The grace of forgiveness to a saint, to a faithful man. I can't wait to begin to study the rest of the book of Ephesians with you. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Saul, Paul, and even in our own time, someone like Louis Zamperini were so impacted by grace and peace, the grace of forgiveness and the peace of being right with God. Lord, I ask that you would, for us, continue to amaze us with your grace and that you would continue to challenge us to understand that instead of hostility with you we've been given peace oh heavenly father if there is anyone here who's never experienced that grace the grace of forgiveness sins atoned for and your peace whereas once we were hostile to you and you were hostile to us but you took the initiative to give us your son the Lord Jesus Christ and he redeemed us he saved us he delivered us from bitterness and wrath and malice in our hearts from anyone you delivered Louis Zamperini from his bitterness and anger and malice at someone like the bird because you flooded his heart with grace and peace. Only you can do that. So Father, as we study this great book together and as we think about being ourselves modern day saints and those who are faithful, may you never let us forget the grace and peace of what we must and shall bask in for the rest of our lives. Lord, thank you for this writer. Thank you for the, the recipients, these Ephesians, and thank you for this request of grace and peace. May it be forever our experience to receive not only grace and peace at the point of our salvation, but grace and peace in a sustained way throughout the entirety of our Christian life so that we would be able to speak to others not of wrath and bitterness, but of love and joy. Lord, as we take our offering now, may we tangibly express our desire to give of our financial resources so that we could continue to extend grace and peace to those who desperately need it. Thank you for giving us grace and peace. In Jesus' name.
Amen.